time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. That's an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift the conversation to prison reform um, by way of the uh, author of a new book, I should say co-author of a new book called Prison by uh, Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. And uh, my guest, as I mentioned, is one of the co-authors. She is a freelance journalist and author of Resistance Behind Bars and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind. Um, And she joins me by phone, Victoria Law. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And, Victoria, I do want to mention, uh, because I've said it a couple of times, that you're the co-author of this book. We had scheduled uh, Maya Shenwar to join us as well, the uh, editor-in-chief of Truthout and the co-author of this book. Um, but she uh, had a family emergency, so she may or may not join us. But uh, in the meantime, let's go ahead and, and get into this. Uh, has has the, the prison reform movement been pushed aside by uh, by the pandemic? It has and it hasn't. So prisons have been, jails and prisons, as well as immigration detention centers, nursing homes, and other places where people congregate and can't necessarily get away from each other, quickly became hotspots for coronavirus early on during the pandemic in the United States. And what this led to were calls for decarceration or for people to be let out from jails and prisons to allow those who are remaining to social distance and to keep coronavirus from spreading. Because when you have 60 or 100 or 120 people crammed into a dormitory, herded around to be in groups, to be brought to, say, the mess hall or the yard or to medical care, there is no way to social distance to keep six feet or more from each other. People are living uh, mere feet apart from each other. They're breathing in the same air. If one person gets sick, it spreads like wildfire. Think about any classroom where one child gets a cold or one child gets head lice and suddenly it has 
spread to the entire classroom and everybody brings it home and spreads it more. So early on we saw calls for uh, jails and prisons to let people out and we saw some jurisdictions responding. We saw, for example, um, Cook County, Chicago, where my co-author Maya lives, uh, started to release people uh, from jails because it was one of the early epicenters of coronavirus. But instead of a judge saying, you don't pose a risk to public safety and you should be able to wait for your day in court at home where you can socially distance, where you can where you have access to soap and water, you can wash your hands, you can take all the proper precautions. They began letting ordering people to be let out on electronic monitors. Electronic monitors for listeners who are not familiar with the term are usually GPS devices fastened to your ankle. So big bulky GPS devices which track your every movement, which might not seem like that much of an issue except that you have to get pre-authorization to go anywhere outside your home, usually up to a week in advance, which means that it makes it nearly impossible to say go grocery shopping or seek emergency medical care because during the pandemic, as many of your listeners know, if you went to the grocery store, you might realize that people had panic bought all of the toilet paper, bread, <laughs> milk, and soap and under electronic monitoring you can only go to the one place that you are pre-approved to go to so that means you cannot go to the store three blocks down and pick up your remaining items because that is not one of the pre-approved activities you are allowed to do outside of your house that day and what ended up happening was in chicago the cook county jail ran out of actual monitors and so instead of saying we still need to decrease the jail population because it is too crowded and we cannot keep people six feet apart and keep them socially distant. Instead, people who had been ordered to be released had been approved to be released to await their day in court. So they had not been proven guilty or convicted. They were simply there because they were awaiting trial then languished in this coronavirus-filled jail while awaiting an ankle monitor to free up. I've been hearing a statistic for years um, that that has been very troubling, and I'm not sure um, how accurate it is, but that the, well, it's not an actual statistic, but, but a fact, um, that, that the U.S. imprisons a greater percentage of its population than any country in the history of the world. Yes, the U.S. has about 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prison population. That is astounding. And I think it also points to the fact that incarceration doesn't equate public safety because if we have such a stag because we have such a staggeringly high rate of incarceration, we should be the safest nation in the world. And as a matter of fact, we see time and time again that this is not the case. Uh, we have to remember that policing and arrests and incarceration actually happen after the fact. They don't actually stop people from committing harm or violence or crime. Instead, what happens is people are, if people are arrested, 
they are arrested after the fact, they are charged after the fact, they are incarcerated after the fact, which is the way the system is designed. It is not a system that is designed to prevent people from acting on their worst impulses or uh, behaviors. They are instead designed to punish people after the fact. Listeners may think about all the times they may have wanted to yell at somebody or, you know, act out in some way over some matter, big or small. You got cut off in the parking lot. You had a bad day at work. You had an argument with your coworker or your neighbor. And my guess is that most, if not all of your listeners, did not go commit murder and mayhem on a person they were annoyed at because they feared prison. They did not do that because they just are not actually thinking that this is the most appropriate response to an argument or a fight or a disagreement. Do you have any sense, after all the the research that you've done for this book and others, um, why America has such a huge percentage of its population incarcerated? Are we just... um, is, is it just the, the easy way to avoid the, the tougher fixes to societal problems? Yes, it is. I mean, there are two... There, we, I mean, I'm thinking of sending convicts mm-hmm. to Australia, you know, ra- rather than yeah. solve problems, um, just kind of export them to uh, prisons on the outskirts of town. Yes. It is a way to hide away people who have been failed by societal shortcomings. So if we think about the fact that we have a number of people who, are, uh, who currently have mental health issues in prisons, uh, if we hide them away in jails or in prisons, we are hiding away the fact that over the past few decades, we have cut housing assistance and medical care and mental health care for people who are the most vulnerable. So people who are low income often are in communities where there has been generational violence and trauma that has gone unaddressed and are often from communities that are under-resourced. And even for people who live in more affluent, quote-unquote, nicer communities and have mental health issues, because of these cuts in medical care, mental health care, and all sorts of other resources that their families could have used in the past to address why this person who has perhaps schizophrenia or something else might be able to get help. Instead, they often go undiagnosed or untreated or undertreated until something happens, which then lands them in jails or in prisons. So it's a good way to hide away the problems that we don't want to address. It's the same thing with uh, drug addiction and substance abuse. If we hide people away in prisons, we don't have to address the fact that we don't have wide-scale models of treatment that works available to everybody. And, and there are a lot of people who actually, uh, because of, of drug violations, are in prison that should be getting help, but are, are, are they getting the help they need in the prison system? So people, prisons are supposed to offer drug treatment programs. These programs are often few and far between for the sheer numbers of people who are inside the prisons. So one, there's a lack of availability of slots. If, you, if a prison incarcerates 3,500 people, maybe they have a program that can hold 
at most a couple of hundred people. So there are often long waiting lists to get into these programs. People are not able to access these programs. And then there's no uniform quality to these programs. So you can go to a program and it can be the kind of thing that you just go to to get out of your cell for an hour or two and you get a certificate that says, I completed the drug treatment program. But it may, not, it may or may not address the underlying reasons why uh, somebody had a drug addiction or a substance abuse problem in the first place. So if you go to a program in which you are told, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, and you get a certificate, and then you come home to the same environment in which it is perhaps chaotic, it is perhaps violent, it is easier to get drugs than it is to get fresh vegetables, um, you now have a felony conviction on your record, which makes it a lot harder to go and get a job to be able to support your family, to perhaps find housing outside of that neighborhood that might have contributed to uh, your drug use and your drug abuse uh, to get your children back. And so you still confront all of these barriers that perhaps a drug treatment program, and I, I believe many of them do not, help you navigate or address. They say, don't do drugs and it is left in a vacuum of, but what do you do when you come out into the same environment and you have many fewer opportunities for some sort of meaningful life because you now have been saddled with a felony record, a giant gap in your employment history, uh, perhaps no additional skills that you um, than when you went in, and now, given our current reality, we also have a bum economy in which jobs are even fewer and scarcer than before. You know, there's something I, I want to get into, and we just have about two minutes mm -hmm. until we go to break. <laughs> and so, okay. um, so I guess I'll just touch on it a little bit. Um, we just went through, uh, we've just gone through in the last few years, and I'll give you a few minutes to ponder on this while we go to break, um, of decriminalizing marijuana in a lot of parts of the country and that has uh, significantly um, impacted the criminal justice system um, as we look to to prison reform you know should we be retroactively looking at marijuana charges and and uh, you know resentencing those or or maybe just uh commuting them all together uh, in the wake of this uh, legalization of marijuana. That's, that's one. And the other is um, something Winston Churchill said about, uh, you know, if you have 10,000 regulations, people lose all respect for regulations, mm -hmm. um, which, which is a fair point to make. Um, but, but ponder that for a couple of minutes, <laughs> Victoria, and we'll come back after the break and talk some more. Okay. Uh, my guest is Victoria Law, the co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, a look at the harmful consequences of popular reforms, and we'll talk some more about those uh, reforms when we return. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, uh, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, at TomSumnerProgram.com. We have some messages as well, and then uh, we will return. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. The marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff Snareplane, Lothar and Hand People, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the co-author of a book called Prison by Any Other Name. Uh, investigative reporter uh, Victoria Law joins me by phone. Victoria, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Yes, thank you. Um, before the break, I brought up the uh, uh, efforts to legalize marijuana around the country. Many states have uh, uh, legalized it outright. Others have decriminalized it or uh, set up the, the medical marijuana thing. Um, should prison reforms be looking at uh, what the sentencing uh, guidelines were for crimes that are no longer crimes? They should, and we should not be stopping just at marijuana. I mean, we see this in, we have seen this happen on the federal level where Congress recognizing that it's past, the past laws such as the Anti-Drug Abuse Act and some of the uh, sentencing guidelines that require gigantic draconian sentences for, uh, for drug crimes were actually far, far too harsh and far, far and disproportionately impacted uh, black and brown people, particularly low-income people, and in many cases, people who actually had very little to do with the actual drug conspiracy or drug trafficking, but instead were the people who had the least amount of information to trade for a better uh, plea bargain and prison sentence. So I noticed that in Michigan, uh, marijuana has been decriminalized for a couple of years and even has a government uh, marijuana regulatory agency. So we have to think about not only retroactively looking at or commuting uh, sentences for people who have been incarcerated under these now outdated and obsolete laws, but also ways to ensure that those years that have been taken from them and any opportunities that they might have had are somehow uh, the the state somehow makes reparations so that they can it's not just that they are thrown out of prison and said great you're free now but you have lost x number of years off your life in the meantime you have no employment skills you have far lost your job your relationships are strained if they exist at all you don't have a home uh, but best of luck to you and instead say what can we do to make up for the fact that we have taken years away from your life. What do you need in order to re-enter a society that has moved on and technologically sped up? And what can we do to actually make it so that you can not only just survive post-prison, but thrive in this new society with this opportunity to be home and back in your community? So I think we need to be looking at commuting sentences, we need to be looking at making sure that people have opportunities when they come home and not just are thrown into a halfway house or a homeless shelter and told to fend for themselves after having years of their lives taken from them. And we should also be looking at this in the context of the fact that many of these laws that were enacted in the 1970s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, and even in the early 2000s were meant simply to punish people and to address a hysteria, if I may, around crime and violence that actually were whipped up by politicians seeking votes and media seeking 
uh, clicks and you know headlines rather than actual uh, actual public safety guidelines. Like, what do you need to make sure that people are not uh, causing harm to other people, whether it be through things like theft and uh, theft and burglary or more violent behaviors, and put resources into those instead. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would answer this question differently, but I'm I'm interested in what your thoughts are about when we hear a phrase like prison reform, that can mean something different to everybody, but what do you think the ultimate goal of prison reform should be? I think the ultimate goal of prison reform should be reforming not just the criminal legal system, but our in- entire society so that we no longer need prisons. And this is not a one-month fix or a one-year fix, but it is looking at the entire way our societies are set up. So what is it about our societies that have people be more likely, in some communities, be more likely to be arrested and have a felony conviction charge thrust upon them than they are to be able to graduate with a meaningful degree from high school and move on to college? Why do we, why do we have a nation in which health care is not guaranteed for everybody? living in our country? Why do we have a country in which there are so many children living in poverty, where while we have so many other corporations and billionaires who, you know, just make money hand over fist? So it, this is, again, not a one-month, one-year, two-year, three-year fix, but it is substantially looking at substantially overhauling uh, the way that our society works and the way that we prioritize where we put our resources so that we're not saying we want more police and not looking at, well, why do we have more police and fewer pre-K uh, slots for our nation's children? Why is it that some children go to bed hungry and wake up hungry and are hungry throughout the day? And in other places, we are throwing out a ton of food. Where are we putting our priorities? Why is it that uh, Flint has not had clean drinking water for however many years the people of Flint have not had this, and why is this not a priority for our government to actually address? Well, in theory, um, the, the criminal justice system or the legal system mm-hmm. exists to address conflicts between people. And you know, otherwise people could just go about their business and, and, and as, as you suggest, not have any prisons. Um, is it possible to create a, a system of um, community um, civilization that exists without prisons? I believe it is. But I don't think we are, the United States is definitely not at this point. Uh, when people talk I'm about not saying we're reform. anywhere close to it, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just fascinated by, by this, mm-hmm. this concept of not having prisons, because I think there are alternatives to a lot of the things that we imprison people for. Yes. And I mean, I think one of the priorities that needs to be shifted and changed is this idea that we always need to address uh, societal wrongdoings or harms or conflicts with punishment. 
and that punishment needs to look like either locking somebody up in a cage or one of the, any of the alternatives that we talk about in our book, such as putting people on electronic monitoring and making their home their de facto cage or uh, putting them on probation with its various rules and regulations. Before the break, you quoted Winston Churchill, who said, if you have 10,000 regulations, people lose all respect for these regulations. So putting people on probation suddenly saddles them with these 10,000 regulations that are not crimes if you are not on probation. If you tell your family you'll be home at 9 p.m. tonight and you come home at 9.30 because you stopped at the grocery store and had a long conversation with somebody or there was traffic or you lost track of time in one place and are simply late, your family may be annoyed at you, but they, they might be upset, but they are not going to threaten to send you back to threaten to send you to jail or prison because you were half an hour late. Whereas when somebody is on probation, they have these strict rules, some of which don't make that much sense for adult people, such as a very early curfew, 8 or 9 p.m., uh, you know, not being allowed to go to certain places, not being allowed to associate with certain people or certain types of people, and it is a driver back to prison. Of uh, 15% of the prison population had previously been on incarceration, uh, had previously been on probation. So, if we look at why do we treat everything with punishment, and that punishment being your loss of liberty, we should ask ourselves instead: What do people need? Uh, people who talk about prison reform often point to places like Norway, which has what they consider very humane prisons and a very low incarceration rate because Norway also has things like universal health care. They actually have a standard for housing and education, and they take care of their citizens so that there is not a very high rate of crime and poverty because people, the government prioritizes taking care of its people over spending lots of money to police and punish and incarcerate them. So if we look at other places that have smaller prison populations, uh, coupled with a very low rate of crime, we can say, what are they doing? And we don't look just at what they're doing inside their prisons, but what are they doing in their society so that people are safe, so that people can walk down the street and not fear being assaulted or mugged. Uh, people can go home and not fear that their family members will be uh, violent or assaultive towards them. That they can that there is a culture of not harming other people based on their race or their gender or their gender identity, and again, we have a long way to go in this country before we are anywhere near that. And, and as people begin to accept the idea that there is a need for prison reform, one of the things that pops up, and, and you touched on it just just almost parenthetically a moment ago, um, alternative sentencing. And uh, there are some that are uh, kind of interesting and creative, depending on uh, a particular judge or uh, local community. But um, have you come across some that you think are models to look at for all over the country and for different kinds of categories of, of offenses? Well, I think that uh, one, we need to think uh, outside of the box. So when we think of 
sentences, usually we think of lock them up and throw away the key or a judge sentencing somebody to a very short amount of time that doesn't address people's, the reasons why people did something. So if we look at, in California, at Brock Turner, the uh, young man from Stanford who raped a woman who was unconscious, and the judge sentenced him to six months in prison. And this outraged uh, people, especially uh, feminists and anti-rape activists and advocates immensely because they said, you are not treating this as the serious crime that it is. And the judge said, well, I don't want to ruin this young man's life by sentencing him to years, if not decades, in prison. Uh, but that doesn't address any of the underlying issues or make Brock Turner understand why it was wrong to sexually assault, A, anyone, B, a young woman who was passed out. So, so I think that when we look at uh, alternative sentencing to imprisonment, we need to not just say what is the sentence that is better than going to prison for years, if not decades of your lives, but also what are the ways in which we can address the harms that have happened and make people realize that they should not do this again. Um, in I want to move to our neighbors in the north. In Canada, uh, there is a community called Hollow Water, which is in First Nations community, and I'm sorry, I forget what uh, what nation they are, but they had a giant problem with child sexual abuse. Uh, this was a community that was First Nations people that uh, had generational trauma and poverty and generations of child sexual abuse. And what we know about people who have been uh, abused as children, particularly by family members and people who have had childhood sexual abuse committed onto them as children, is that they're much more likely to grow up to also perpetrate that kind of violence on their loved ones. And so what this community did was they realized that the solution was not to have children or family members call the police and have their loved ones locked up because as horrific as child sexual abuse is, when it comes at the hands of somebody who is a trusted family member or a beloved family member, you don't want to see them punished and locked away. You just want them to stop hurting you. And they instituted restorative justice circles. And this was a process that took many, many years where people met. So first they removed the child from the home. And they said, okay, we need to get this child to safety. You cannot like be in this home with your child because you are not safe. And then they embarked upon years and years of uh, circles and supports and all, and all sorts of uh, counseling type groups with the person who had been doing the harm to not only get them to understand why they had done this, but what they needed to do to make amends and never have this happen again. And the meanwhile, people were working with the children who had been abused to say, what do you need and what do you want? And many times the children said, I want to go home to my mother, father, aunt, uncle, whoever it was that had abused them, but I don't want them to hurt me anymore. And so sometimes this, again, would take years. And this was something that judges recognized is that children wanted to stay with their parents, even if their parents had done horrible, terrible things to them but they didn't want their parents to continue doing these horrible, terrible things. But this is a much longer process than saying, you know, calling 911, having the police come, having the police 
potentially arrest somebody, but potentially not, um, and then going through a court system that says either prison or no prison. Uh, but we're not going to address the underlying reasons why you thought it was acceptable or okay to do this, that, or the other to another person. I, I remember uh, interviewing someone who had written a book about a, uh, a diversionary program in one of the northeastern states, and I wish I could remember more of the particulars, but essentially what it was, Victoria, was this judge was giving young offenders a choice between um, incarceration or detention and a, a mandatory season with a Shakespeare company. Mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds weird, but, but there was an, an education, there was, there was an impact that happened because of that exposure to classic literature and performing in front of people and working with others and all of these different elements that was actually helping some of these young people um, move on and not make future bad choices. I think that when you get to give people more options and more opportunities than the ones they currently think that they have, people are more likely to gravitate towards and go towards the better opportunity. So if somebody has grown up and all they see is their parents working really hard and never getting anywhere, and then they see these other people who don't seem to be working that hard and they're doing something that is illegal, but they are getting money, cars, material things, the best, you know, the newest sneakers. Bling. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, and, and you see this, and these are the only two choices that you're seeing all around you. You're going to gravitate towards, and remember also when we talk about young people, we talk about people whose brains are not fully developed and do not understand consequences. The neuroscience now actually shows that we should not be treating 18-year-olds as if they are full-grown adults with full understanding of the future and long-term consequences. So when you have young people who day in and day out are conditioned to see that, you know, we don't need to say, like, you are going to, we are going to lock you up and throw away the key forever and ever. We need to say, what are the other opportunities that people can have in their lives in our book, we interviewed uh, Boston University researcher Susan Sarid, who spent a decade uh, researching and interviewing and following, uh, I think it was a dozen women who had substance, uh, substance, use, substance abuse disorder. And she would follow them you know, through their numerous stints in rehab and jail and come out. And you know, they were in a cycle. They were mired in a cycle of addiction, arrest, rehab, jail, jail, rehab, et cetera, et cetera, come out, rinse, repeat. And we asked her, well, what if the solution is not sending people to jail, if the solution is often not sending people to rehab, what is the solution? And she pointed to two examples of women later in life, these were not children, who after years, if not over a decade of addiction to things like heroin and crack, you know, uh, actually were able to find opportunities and meaning in their life so that they would actually 
want to stay sober and not use. So in one case, a woman got out of jail, prison, rehab, uh, and ended up in an apartment building where many of her neighbors were elderly or had mobility issues, but kind of needed her help. And she was, you know, at age 30 or 40-something, a relatively young, healthy person. So she started doing things that, you know, good neighbors should do. Like, oh, do you need to go, you know, you need groceries. Let me help you carry these groceries up the stairs. Let me go grocery shopping for you. Let me, you know, help you move this table from point A to point B. Um, And in return, the neighbors started getting to know her. You know, she built relationships with them. They appreciated the help that she gave. And that was the turning point for her to say, I need to show up for all of these people who might not be able to get this help if I'm, you know, high on whatever sitting in my room. And so that was her motivation. Finally, after over a decade of struggling with substance use and substance addiction, to say, no, I need to show up for these people. I I cannot be, you know, high or in search of getting high or desperate to get high in my room. I need to actually be part of this community. And another woman had a similar story where she got a job at one of these places like Goodwill or the Salvation Army or something where they're doing good work. Uh, you know, she felt like she was helping other people. She was surrounded by coworkers who were also dedicated to helping other people. And she didn't feel this need to go drown herself or obliterate her reality by abusing drugs. And instead she said, I have this meaningful job. I'm doing things that are helpful to other people, people who once upon a time I might have been in that situation where I really needed the free meal, I really needed the food, I really needed the shelter, and instead I can be in this position to help people and I can't do that if I am high out of my mind. So I think that it is similar to sending younger people to participate in a Shakespeare program to say, like, what are the other possibilities that exist outside of the two very narrow choices that you have seen so far in your life? Well, and and also, how do we how do we get young people to embrace learning in a way that isn't just the the standard what's expected, um, you know, uh, learning to tests, uh, but yeah. but embrace this this idea that that life is learning. Yes. Well, I think one is that we need to uh, the education system needs to not focus on teaching to the test because that is just rote memorization. And then also if you look at many schools, particularly schools in low-income communities or that serve low-income students, particularly students of color, oftentimes what you'll see is they don't have arts and music programs. They don't have drama programs. They don't have these extracurricular activities that would spark young people's imaginations uh, and and uh, excite them about learning. Instead, what you have are school security officers or school police, and children are treated as if they are criminals from a very young age. (laughs) I mean, several times a year, we see these terrible stories about a young girl. Victoria, excuse me. I I hate to interrupt, but I have to put a comma here. I have another break. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Okay, my Mm -hmm. guest is Victoria Law, uh, co-author of prison by any other name. We'll be back with more right after this.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman Steady Sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman Sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. The book is Prison by Any Other Name, co-authored by my guest this hour, Victoria Law. Victoria, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks so much. I'm enjoying our conversation, Tom. Sorry I had to, to cut you off there when we went to break, but mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking in, in the last segment about uh, prison reform and alternatives uh, to prison sentencing and, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I guess the, the broader overreaching question is, can the American criminal justice system um, including the courts and, and prisons and, and various uh, alternative sentencing guidelines and so on. Can it be reformed, or is it is it really in need of a complete reinvention? I think, and I speak for myself and my co-author and many other people, that it we need a complete overhaul and reinvention. We can't just say if we reform this aspect of it, this will make it better. Um, To quote Angela Davis, who is a longtime prison abolitionist and scholar and thinker and professor in the University of California, as well as somebody who once upon a time was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, she asked recently, does it make sense to call for more reforms to the failed institutions that began as reforms? And the failed institution she refers to is prison, which began as a reform to the way that uh, justice or punishment used to be meted out, which was floggings and hangings and beheadings and being put in stocks and pillories for actions that violated the social norm. So not just harmful things like assault uh, or burglary, but also things that we now are like, oh, that's actually not a crime, like adultery or uh, premarital sex or not going to church on Sundays. So, yeah, uh, I always wondered, about Victoria, I always wondered if, mm-hmm. um, you know, before the Catholic Church uh, dropped its uh, fish on Friday requirement, mm-hmm. if there were people in hell that <laughs> got out because they, they, um, because they, they were there because they ate fish or something other than fish on Friday. Yes, I'm sure there were. Um. Let me let me ask this because um, we just have a few minutes left, um, or, or at least a fairly short segment this time. Um, what is it that you and uh, Maya Shenwar, your co-author, are hoping people get out of this book? And 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 who did you intend to have read it? Who who do you hope? reads this book, and and what do you hope they'll get out of it? So we were hoping, when we first wrote this book, and we first began thinking about and writing this book between 2015 and 2016, so we were in the Obama era, we were seeing moves on the federal level and on many state levels and local levels towards understanding that we cannot incarcerate our way into safety. Uh, we, At the time, the nation had 2.3 million people in jails and prisons across the nation. This was not counting people in immigrant detention 
or juvenile uh, prisons or military prisons. This was just people in jails and prisons, and we were not a safer country because of this. And people were understanding that we needed to move away from locking people up in jails and prisons. But what we were also seeing was a disturbing trend towards forming, towards alternatives in which people were still under some form of surveillance and coercive control. And it was often the same people who had been locked up in jails and prisons, disproportionately black, brown, low income, uh, people who came from communities that were devoid of resources and under-resourced. And, and these alternatives did not address people's underlying needs and instead continued to shift the onus onto them for breaking the law or not being able to uh, provide for themselves and or their families without breaking the law. So what we were hoping was that people would take away from our book that we should not rely on policies that replicate the logic of prisons in which you must pull somebody out of their community and isolate them and hope that they somehow get better by just being pulled away from their community and instead say, what do we need to do to, A, repair the harm, a la uh, you know, restorative justice or transformative justice or some way to make amends for the harms that you do, but also make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, so, so we were hoping that this would be a conversation opener and a discussion opener for many places that we're looking at reducing jails and prison populations by relying more on electronic monitoring, uh, which again is a slippery slope back to incarceration and instead expands the number of people that are under some sort of um, surveillance and state control or relying on mass probation. And, we were also hoping to address the fact that we see the creep of criminalization happening in very in other institutions such as schools. Like why do some schools have more school police officers and no art and music teachers? Why you know, why are you more likely to end up in handcuffs than you are to be exposed in a meaningful way to Shakespeare or other uh, or other classics in certain schools in certain neighborhoods? So we wanted to have that be something that people were thinking about instead of having reforms largely pushed towards electronic monitoring, probation, having people, you know, go to mandated drug treatment that does that looks very similar to prisons and have that be the end of the conversation rather than saying, How do we tear this down and build up a world in which we all want to live and that we all feel safe in. But in, in order to really do that effectively, we have to look at not just reforming the criminal justice system, but um, all parts of, uh, of our society where people aren't marginalized and, and put in positions where um, maybe in some cases they believe the only way to survive is by breaking the law. Um, we, we need to look at the economy and schools and yeah. mm -hmm. um, just really our, our entire society, don't we? Yes, that we definitely do. I mean, again, as you pointed out earlier, when in this Northeast program where children were sent or teenagers were sent to a Shakespeare drama program, rather than just putting them in a youth prison, they did much better. Suddenly there's another option, not, you know, option A, 
work your fingers to the bone and never get anywhere. Option B, do this illegal activity and see lots of money. Uh, and they don't see an option C, D, or E because these are the only two options people are given. Well, let me ask this as we as we bring things to a close, Victoria, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe how fast the time has gone. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Um, the book is called Prison by Any Other Name by Maya uh, Shenoir and Victoria Law, my guest, uh, Victoria Law, uh, talking about the uh, harmful consequences of popular reforms. And... Um, I always give guests, Victoria, an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. I'm sure it's available where all fine books are available. Um, But are there some resources, is there some work being done that you would encourage people to to learn about? Yes. I mean, uh, in our book, we list a number of different organizations that have been doing work around either uh, challenging some of these new ways of imprisoning people and keeping them under some sort of isolation. So there's the Challenging E-Carceration, so it's E-Carceration program out of Illinois, which was founded by people who were on electronic monitoring and recognized that Electronic monitoring is not the solution to mass incarceration and instead replicates the logic of prisons and often sends people back to jails and prisons for minor violations. Again, those 10,000 regulations that nobody can keep track of. Um, there is in, uh, throughout the United States, there's a network called Survived and Punished that works specifically with domestic violence survivors who are in prison for defending themselves or because they were coerced into some sort of criminal activity by their abusive partners, spouses, or other family members. Um, So there are a number of different organizations working around these issues so that that, uh, so listeners don't have to recreate, uh, recreate the wheel or reinvent the wheel to be able to learn about some of these issues um, in you know, in Illinois, there is Project NIA, which looks at dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline in which certain schools, again, have more police and more policing than they do other resources that would encourage and enable young students to survive and thrive in this society. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Take care. Once again, the uh, name of the book is Prison by Any Other Name. It's written by Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law, and it looks at the harmful consequences of popular reforms. Tomorrow on the show, uh, Brendan Beery will be here, and we'll be talking about uh, the notorious RBG. So be sure and tune in at uh, 9 o'clock for that. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 